This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Dramatic footage is coming out of Norway where there's heavy flooding after a storm in the country's southwest. Record downpours have caused extensive damage in what's being described as the worst flooding in 200 years. The skies above Cumbria have cleared, but the legacy of Storm Desmond lives on. I'm above the city of Carlisle, and the sheer scale and depth of the floods is extraordinary. This isn't only affecting the people who live here. It's having a huge impact on transport. The major rail link through here has been cut. And this is a place, bear in mind, that was just given five years ago a new £38 million flood defence scheme. The violence and the volume of the flood water have taken everyone by surprise. It's particularly devastating because it's the third time in, in a very short period of time that it's happened. It, it's, 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 it's really dreadfully, dreadfully upsetting. David Truckman, BBC News, in Cumbria. The heaviest rains in over a century, sending a wave of floods across southern India. At least 180 people have died in the disaster in the state of Tamil Nadu. More than 200,000 people have fled from their homes. In the capital city, Chennai, thousands of factories are shut down. The power is cut, schools are closed, and the airport is paralyzed. India grapples with monsoon flooding every year. But Reuters' Douglas Busfine says Prime Minister Narendra Modi has blamed this particular crisis on global warming. That was a, a remark he made on returning from the climate summit in Paris. And it's certainly the case that uh, the Indian government has recognized that climate change is a challenge to its own management of cities, its own ability to respond to disasters. This is definitely on the government's agenda. More than twice as much rain has fallen on Tamil Nadu in the last 24 hours as the entire December average. Weather forecasters say the downpour is set to continue for at least another day. Evacuations ongoing as rising rivers and creeks force people out of their homes in Portland this morning. Monday was the wettest day in Portland ever, leading to rescues and washed out roads. Don Champion has the latest. Extreme rainfall events are cropping up around the world. In England, once-in-a-thousand-year floods have repeated. I think it's three times now in five years. Records are falling in many countries. In a warmer world, we've gained 7% more water vapor in the atmosphere. It has to come down somewhere. A few weeks ago, our guest David Wasdell suggested the outcome of our current path of emissions— would eventually be a world at least 8 degrees centigrade hotter on average, maybe more. Some questioned that. This week, the University of Edinburgh released a paper echoing Wasdell's climate. 8 degrees is possible, according to Professor Roy Thompson, as published in the Transactions of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Climate change does not occur in a steady economy or a peaceful time. This fall, we saw in Paris how terrorism empowered politicians to ban climate action in the name of public safety. The terrorists knew they were attacking before the world flooded in for the COP21 climate talks. They succeeded in disrupting the essential public voice. But in this show, we asked two different questions. 
Will the fossil-based economy collapse, just as extreme weather events punish property and infrastructure? What if we are too broke to rebuild or cope? There's a blog for that. It's the Economic Collapse blog with millions of readers. We'll look at fresh warnings of a new depression, how it's forming, with blogger Michael T. Snyder. Then, believe it or not, there are darker things to consider. If climate disrupts agriculture as expected and already happening, social violence and wars may become worse. Our guest, Professor Tim Snyder, explains why climate change may open the door to more mass murder. It needs to be said, and he said it in the New York Times. We'll talk with Tim Snyder. Off we go now with the black clouds hanging over economies around the world. Since the financial crash of 2007-2008, we've all been a bit nervous about our jobs and the economy. Lately, the warning signs are flashing again, despite trillions of dollars, euros, and pounds given to the banks. Maybe the system is just plain bankrupt and ready to collapse. Blogger Michael T. Snyder runs a blog called The Economic Collapse. It's hugely popular. His warning signs are spread around the Internet. Michael is young, a professed Christian, now a novelist, and too often scarily ahead of the mainstream news. Michael, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Well, thank you, Alex. Uh, Thank you uh, so much for inviting me to be on today. I check your blog about twice a week. Do you know how many readers you have? I do. The Economic Collapse blog has been running since 2009, and at this point, We average well over a million page uh, views per month, month after month after month. Yeah, it's really exciting that so many people from all over the world come and and visit the website. But then, of course, as you mentioned, my articles are republished on dozens of other websites all over the world, some much more prominent than my own, where they're seen countless more times each month. So... It absolutely amazes me that someone just as myself, an ordinary guy living in the the middle of nowhere in the mountains of Idaho, can literally impact people all over the world. Yeah, I have read several of your articles on Zero Hedge, one of the biggest financial blogs there is, so you definitely are getting out there. Michael, when did you realize the financial system was unstable? And I guess you've told us when you started the Economic Collapse blog. It's been a few years now. It has been, you know... Some of your listeners may not be familiar with me, but I was actually once an attorney. I went to law school at the University of Florida Law School down in Gainesville, Florida, and I graduated from there with a law degree and an LLM. And and once I left there, I went back to my old stomping grounds up in the D.C. area, and I actually worked as an attorney right in the heart of Washington, D.C. for a number of years. And so I was uh, working there for quite some time right down on K Street, kind of where, you know, if you watch uh, television shows or movies about Washington, D.C., you know, K Street's where all the lawyers are, where all the lobbyists are. It doesn't necessarily have the greatest reputation in the world, but I was there. I was just another of the mindless drones that march into Washington, D.C. every day, trying to make a living, trying to make a paycheck, and so that's what I was doing. But at the time, I was becoming increasingly distressed about the direction of our country, about the corruption I saw all around me, about uh, our economic situation. And so the 2008 crash approached. I, I warned family and friends. In fact, I remember 
sitting on the sofa when we went up to visit my wife's parents up in Canada and, and sitting there and sitting on their sofa and telling them in the summer of 2008, a great financial crash was imminent. And of course, we all know what happened later that year. And so, you know, I was very, very disturbed about that. But it wasn't until late 2009, end of 2009, about this time of the year, that I started the economic collapse blog. And it really took off because people at the time, millions of people have been losing their jobs. Millions of people have been losing their homes. And people were confused because they knew they weren't getting the truth from the mainstream media. They didn't understand what was happening to them, and they were looking for real answers. And so websites such as mine have, have really taken off. And and uh, ever since then, the audience has continued to grow. And like I said today, we've got a, a very, very large audience, and I'm very thankful for that. For a while there recently, the whole media choir was singing about the recovery And you seemed like the odd man out. But now I've read on your blog and elsewhere, major banks and billionaires admit we are perched on the edge of another downturn. Who are some of the big-name institutions or well-known business icons who are now warning us? Yeah, well, just the other day, first of all, J.P. Morgan Chase came out, and they issued a report which said that the possibility of a recession within the next three years is 76% the probability of recession within the next three years. But Citigroup was even more pessimistic than J.P. Morgan Chase. Researchers at Citigroup recently released a report where they declared there was a 65% chance that the U.S. economy will plunge into recession by the end of next year, in 2016. All right. Now, Michael, you're kind of famous for your lists of signs that things are about to fall apart. Could you read us one of your top 10 warning lists? Yeah, yeah. And this one will kind of go along with what I was just talking about in that right now, so many of the exact same patterns and signs that we witnessed right before the great crash of 2008 are happening again, right in front of our eyes. For example, global GDP growth has gone negative for the first time since 2009, the last financial crisis. Corporate earnings growth has turned negative. That's something we saw right before the last financial crisis. S&P 500 net profit margins are steeply declining. And why is that important? Well, since 1973, there has only been one 60 basis point decline in S&P 500 net profit margins that didn't lead to a recession. So this is a leading indicator. This is something we tend to watch for, something that would happen before a recession. You know, something else we expect to see before recession is for global trade to, for a big downturn in global trade. This is something that happened before the last crisis. It's happening now. The biggest bank in the Western world, HSBC, recently came out and said global trade as a whole on a dollarized basis is down 8.4% for the whole world for the year so far. And then we just learned that in October, U.S. imports of goods declined by 6.6% on a year-over-year basis. Kind of surprising because this time of the year, Normally, we're importing all kinds of stuff to fill up our stores for the busy holiday season, but our imports are down 6.6% for the month of October. Then our exports are down even more. And if you remember Barack Obama, he came out and he said, I'm going to increase U.S. exports. It's going to create more jobs for American workers, blah, blah, blah. But instead, exports are declining. In October, U.S. exports of goods were down 10.4% on a year-over-year basis. These are exactly what we would expect to see 
before a recession or as we're entering a recession. Also look at manufacturing. U.S. manufacturing is contracting at the fastest pace that we have seen since the last recession. Corporate debt defaults. Corporate debt defaults have risen to the highest level that we've seen since the last recession. We've got all this corporate debt going bad. Corporations getting into trouble. They can't pay their debts. They can't service their debts. Huge problem. This is something that we also saw the last time around. Also, you know, as we entered the last crisis, holiday sales went negative. Well, for the very first time since the last recession, credit card numbers show that holiday sales have gone negative. You know, we've read all this information about uh, potentially a weak holiday season as consumers are stressed. Consumers don't same, have the same kind of money to spend. That's another problem. And so all these things are adding up. Another thing that I watch that I'm concerned about is the velocity of money, and perhaps I should explain that for a moment. When an economy is working efficiently, when times are good, when people are feeling good about things, money tends to flow through the system pretty easily and smoothly. So I buy something from you, you buy something from someone else. The velocity of money tends to, to go pretty well. But when things start getting hard, when people don't have money, when credit's not flowing smoothly, when, when people get fearful, they tend to start holding on to their money, the velocity of money slows down. And so what we've seen during every single recession in the post-World War II era, the velocity of money has dropped, and that makes perfect sense for all the reasons why I just explained. Well, a funny thing happened with the last recession. During the last recession, 2008-2009, the velocity of money dropped dramatically, exactly what we would expect. Then the recession ended, and the velocity of money ticked up just slightly, but then it started going down again, and it kept going down and down and down all throughout the supposed economic recovery, and just recently it dropped to the lowest level ever recorded. And so that's an indication of a, an economy that is very, very deeply troubled. And, of course, this is not just a U.S. thing. We're seeing globally what we're seeing, some very troubling signs. We're seeing the price of oil. If you remember, right before the stock market crash of 2008, we saw the price of oil go up to about $140 a barrel, drop dramatically to beneath $40 a barrel. It was the biggest oil crash in all of history. Well, we've seen a similar thing happen here in just in recent times. In, you know, in 2014, late 2014, the price of oil really crashed. It had been over $100 a barrel at one point, crashed dramatically, but then it stabilized for a little while. But now it's crashing again. And just this week, it fell below $38 a barrel for the very first time since 2009, since the last financial crisis and the last recession. You know, also looking at commodities. Before the great financial crash of 2008, we saw a crash in the price of commodities. I'm talking about things like iron ore, copper, lead, tin, aluminum, things of that nature. Well, right now, we're seeing the price of commodities crash again. In fact, the, the Bloomberg Commodity Index just hit a 16-year low. This is exactly what we would expect to see if a major financial crash was imminent. Another thing I watch very, very closely is junk bonds. You know, when there's financial trouble, usually we start to see it play out in at the edges. Kind of, you know, junk bonds. A lot of people may get thrown off by that term, but it's just junk bonds are considered to be risk a little bit riskier, so they have a higher rate of return, and therefore corporations that are maybe not as stable, a little bit riskier, 
Well, that's where we start to see the trouble erupt when financial trouble starts to come. And, and, and so in 2008, junk bonds crashed before stocks did. And, and if it was going to happen again, we would expect to see it start to happen again. Well, a, a high-yield bond ETF that I watch very, very closely, known as JNK, I've been waiting for it to hit the psychologically important 35 level and drop below that. And it hasn't happened since 2009, but it happened just this week. Just this week, J&K hit 35, went below 35, dropped down to 34.44 at one point. But that's a huge red flag that big trouble is coming for stocks. And then on, on top of everything else, back in 2008, we started to see other global stock markets start to collapse before U.S. stocks did. And right now, in 2015... Of the 93 largest stock market indexes in the entire world, 47 of them, slightly more than half, are not only just down, but 47 of them have plunged at least 10% year-to-date. Some of them down are like down like 40 or 50%. So already we've seen global stock market crashes all over the world. It's just the U.S. hasn't felt the full force of this yet. And so, you know, Americans are saying, well, maybe everything's going to be okay. But everything that we're seeing is playing out just like we saw in 2008. And everything that we would expect to see right before a major financial crash here in the United States, it, it's, it's playing out in textbook fashion, Alex. Yeah, we really have to look in other places of the world, too. Uh, we're not just an island in North America or Europe. I'm thinking about Brazil. That was touted as being one of the big powerhouses, the new industrial thing. They had their energy going. Goldman Sachs just came out this month and said they're in an outright depression. There's no way to hide it. Argentina's a mess. We could go on, and many places of the world, they're already in their recession, if not depression, wouldn't you say? Oh, I, I completely agree. That's something I started writing back in the, in the summer. And then, like, as you mentioned, when Goldman Sachs came out and said, well, you know, Brazil's really, you know, you might as well call it a depression, what's happening down there. And it's true. They plunged into this horrible recession. They're, uh, if I recall correctly, the sixth largest economy on the entire planet. So they're, Brazil's a really big deal. But what happened was Brazil's considered to be one of these emerging markets. And something we saw before the 2008 crisis was the U.S. dollar surged, and this created all kinds of problems in emerging markets, and it's happening again. And why, this, why the U.S. dollar surging is such a big problem was during the quantitative easing era, during the easy money, when the Federal Reserve was creating all this easy money and money was flowing at super low interest rates all over the world, a lot of this hot money flowed into emerging markets. So we saw this huge binge by governments in emerging markets, big corporations in emerging markets. They, they gorged on debt. Much of it was denominated in U.S. dollars. And so now that the U.S. dollar has really surged in recent months, this is really hurting them because it takes much more of their own local currencies to service and pay back these debts. Meanwhile, the oil and other commodities that they export, they're getting less dollars for, less money for. So it's this double whammy, which is really hitting emerging markets like Brazil really hard. So, you know, Brazil's already in recession. Some are calling it depression. Canada is in recession. Russia's in recession. Japan is in recession. And all over the world, we're seeing recessions in emerging markets. We're seeing stock market collapses in emerging markets. Huge problems all over the planet. 
And, but, you know, as Americans, we're so focused on this country, we don't realize the, the intensity of the carnage that we're already seeing all over the world. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, Michael T. Snyder, owner of the Economic Collapse blog. Okay, so do you think, Michael, that we'll wake up one day to find the stock market on the floor and the banks closed? Or will the economy fall apart bit by bit over time? Well, I, you know, I've always said that I have a little bit of a different perspective on this, that I, I believe our economic collapse is something that has been happening, is happening right now, and is going to continue to happen and will accelerate in the future. And yes, there will be big events, but a lot of people who write about the economic collapse, they kind of write about it like it's some big hyped-up event that will happen in, in a day or a week or a month, and then uh, then it'll be over, and then we'll pick up the pieces. Well, I don't see it that way. I see it as a crisis which is going ongoing and is going to intensify. So, yeah, I, I do believe that we're going to see a dramatic stock market crash like we saw in 2008, and that there will be ups and downs, but that you know the, the, our financial markets are going to really fall, and, and they're not going to get back up. You know, although there will be moments of hope and, you know, th- moments when things seem like they're getting better. But we are going to see a complete and total kind of final implosion of our current financial system, I believe. And I believe that we will see banks fail, financial institutions fail, two big fail banks actually fail. And, of course, last time around in 2008, we were told, oh, too big to fail. It's a huge problem. Our politicians said, we're going to fix this. Well, did they fix it? Of course not. In fact, since that time, the last crisis, the two big-to-fail banks, I'm talking about banks like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Citigroup, etc., since the last financial crisis, collectively, the two big-to-fail banks have gotten 40% larger. Meanwhile, 1,400 smaller banks have totally gone out of existence. So the problem of too big-to-fail is now bigger than ever. And during this time, instead of learning their lesson, these two big to fail banks have become even more reckless, even more insane. You know, you know, if you want to talk about these derivatives, where five of these two big to fail banks have exposure to derivatives that's in the tens of trillions of dollars, and and but and yet the biggest one of them, J.P. Morgan Chase, has assets of about 2.6 trillion dollars. And so, you know, these the big banks have turned Wall Street into the biggest casino in the history of the world. They've been insanely reckless. Maybe they're counting on the fact that the U.S. government will somehow bail them out, you know, once uh, things spiral out of control. But globally, this derivatives bubble is somewhere in the neighborhood of $600 trillion, according to the Bank for International Settlements. And so when this worldwide derivatives bubble finally bursts, there's not going to be enough money in the entire world to clean up this mess. I know that you've seen this too. Some bloggers seem to take joy in things falling apart, and they tell us to buy lots of guns to shoot one another, maybe over the last can of food. I don't find that in your work. In fact, you tell us we need more love. How do you get to that space reporting the awful things that you do? Yeah. You know, a lot of people say, well, Michael, you write about some really hard things. You must be just real negative, depressed person all the time. But that's not true at all. In fact, my wife and I seek to live in a constant state of shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. You know, so we don't live in fear. In fact, I sleep extremely good at night. 
but I didn't. I don't think it does any good for us to stick our heads in the sand and, and ignore the problems that are happening. What's happening on the horizon? So I do believe that we are coming up on the worst times. By the time everything is said and done, I believe we're going to see the worst times that America has ever seen, even greater than the Great Depression of the 1930s, any other time you want to name. I believe that by the time we get to the end of the road, and it's going to take a while to get there, by the time everything plays out, things are going to be really bad. So I do advocate preparation. I mean, you know, my wife and I ourselves, we store up food and supplies, and we believe in precious metals and all that. But on the other hand, I also believe that when times are the darkest, that's when the greatest heroes are needed. And if you look back through history and people that we admire, who are the great heroes that we admire? Well, they rose up during times of great challenge, of great stress, of great crisis. So my wife and I are actually looking forward to the future. We believe that the greatest chapters of our lives are still ahead. Yeah, conditions are going to be different from what they are today. Our, our world is becoming increasingly unstable. Things are going to change. Our lifestyles are going to change. And yet the greatest opportunities to do good, to make a difference, to you know, do things that are meaningful and purposeful are ahead of us. So we, we are really excited about what's coming up. But, yeah, things are going to be very, very different in this country, without a doubt. I know you've published a novel called The Beginning of the End. What are you trying to do with that book? Well, what I wanted to do was paint a picture. Because so many people, you know, they, they learn about some of these things, and they're like, about what's happening, and they're like, okay, what is my life going to look like? What are, what are we facing? What are we going to be dealing with? And then on the other hand, people really like to be entertained in our society today, we're addicted to entertainment. The average American watches 293 minutes of television a day. We love our movies, our DVDs, our video games, all the rest of it. And, you know, so people love a good story. So what I wanted to do was create a compelling and very entertaining story, and that's what this is, the beginning of the end. It's a mystery-slash-thriller set in the near future in, the, in America, and it's got a, you know, there's an ex-CIA agent in there, there's a prepper in there, there's a, a, a female news reporter, and all their lives end up intersecting in some very interesting ways. And so it's a very in- interesting story. Some people that have read it said, I got the book, I read it in 48 hours, I couldn't put it down. And so people really enjoy it, but it's a book with a purpose. So what I've done in every chapter, I've tried to incorporate truth bombs. I've tried to communicate so much of what I've learned in my research over the years and really try to paint a picture of what I believe is coming to this country, what things are going to look like as the economy collapses and so many of the other things I believe are coming, I try to incorporate into this work. So people are being entertained, but at the same time they're being informed. And it's the kind of thing you can give to a friend, a family member, a coworker, and say, hey, read, you know, check out this great book but it can also serve to wake them up at the same time. You know, I worry about how little prepared, even mentally, my fellow citizens seem to be. It's like people want to party right up to the moment the car goes off the cliff. Michael, what do you think softens us up? Is it the media? Is it corrupt government to big corporations? What makes us so blind to the events that you are reporting every week in the Economic Collapse blog? Well, that's a really great question, Alex, and and you're right. People are prepared. In fact, 
We haven't learned our lesson from the last time around. About 62% of all Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and and most people seem to think uh, happy days are, are ahead of us. Well, I think kind of what I touched on earlier, where it it really is this giant propaganda matrix that we're all plugged into, that we all greatly underestimate the impact that it has on all of our lives. And so, as I mentioned just uh, earlier, the average American does, this is according to the Washington Post, the average American watches 293 minutes of television a day. That's almost five hours. And another study found when you add everything together, television and uh, movies and DVDs and the radio and, you know, our smartphones and, you know, video games and, and everything else, the average American is plugged into some form of media for an average of 10 hours a day. And now who controls all that? Who's giving us the messages we're constantly getting through all this? Well, at the very top... All of this media, more than 90% of it, is controlled by just six gigantic media corporations, which in turn, of course, are owned by the elite of the world. And so they really do set the agenda for what we think about, what we talk about uh, with our family members at the dinner table, at school, at work, around the water cooler. Our interactions with each other, so much of what they're based on is a sporting event we just saw or a television show that we saw, you know, we're watching last night or something that came up on the news. You know, we, we talk about the things that were fed through this propaganda matrix and they really, uh, you know, set, set the agenda for what we think about, what we consider to be important. If the, the mainstream media is not talking about it, totally ignoring it, well, then it must not be meaningful. It must not be important. So I, one of the things I really try to get people to do is wake up and understand that this gigantic behemoth, which is called the mainstream media, or I call it the propaganda matrix, it has a gigantic amount of impact over all of our lives. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. The other concern I have, Michael Snyder, is coming from the weekly content of my own radio show. We're facing big problems. You can call it whatever you want, but the weather's weird. It's distorted. As we speak, there's been hardly any snow in the northern states, at least in the east. Parts of the south and west coast are drowning in extreme rainfall events. There's droughts, floods around the world. If that keeps going... And governments and just plain people will go broke trying to rebuild over and over. And if your blog is right and the system goes bankrupt first, we won't be able to fix anything. What are your thoughts? Oh, I agree. You know, we're, we're, we're having huge problems with our infrastructure. You know, up in the state of Michigan, they've actually, some rural roads have actually been, they used to be paved roads, but they've, Instead, they've transitioned those back to gravel roads because they're cheaper to maintain because there's not enough money to maintain our infrastructure. You know, different reports that come out kind of on a yearly basis give extremely low grades to our infrastructure. We're seeing bridges fail all over the country. We've got a huge crisis with our bridges, but it's our roads, it's our airports, it's, uh, you know, our sewer systems are aging and are, are breaking down. You know, and and the money simply isn't there to maintain them and keep them up as they should. So we're seeing infrastructure all over the country break down. At the same time, we're seeing 
increasing natural disasters. We're seeing in Oklahoma, they've already set a brand new record for the number of earthquakes in a year in Oklahoma, in the central part of the country. You know, we're seeing flooding, you know, right now out in Portland, horrible flooding, rains coming in. Someone just sent me an email today about the flooding out there. Of course, we had the flooding out in South Carolina earlier this year uh, associated with Hurricane Joaquin. The governor of the state said that was a thousand-year storm. That, you know, the areas of Earth, they got the amount of rain not seen in a thousand years. Out in California, the drought has been so bad, but then a huge storm came in caused tremendous flooding and mudslides. Mud came across major highways, you know, and then down in Texas, they've also had horrible flooding, you know, uh, the, the remnants of Hurricane Patricia down there. So we had all the flooding and then the fires, you know, according to the National Interagency Fire Center, according to them, we have now set a brand new record for the number of acres burned by fire for a year, in any year in U.S. history, this was the worst year for what, the number of acres burned by wildfires in all of U.S. history. And I know it was really bad because a fire came to within about 10 miles of my home out here in the mountains of Idaho. And so, yeah, we're seeing these natural disasters, all these things increase and become destructive. And then, you know, we're really struggling to rebuild. You know, down in New Orleans, they're still struggling to rebuild, you know, almost a decade after Hurricane Katrina. So, it is a major problem, and as the economy gets worse and as government funding dries up a lot more than it is now, this trend and, and what we're seeing is only going to intensify. So, Michael Snyder, are we just spectators to a great unwinding that has to happen, or should we fight trying to save the system? Well, for years I've been advocating for things that we could do. You know, we needed to do something about Wall Street. We needed to do something about derivatives. We needed to do something about the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is really at the core of our debt-based financial system, which is and central banking all over the world, of course, causing huge, huge problems. And we're seeing global debt at records we've never seen before. Uh, you know, something should have been done. Our our system should have been fundamentally reformed after the last crisis. We should have learned our lessons, and so. There were things that myself and other people were advocating as potential solutions, but they were totally ignored. Instead, the powers that be patched the system together. They went on with business as usual. Our long-term problems continue to get even worse. So at this point, we're so close, and I believe the, the next crisis has already started. It's unfolding. So I don't believe it's going to be averted. I don't believe there's any hope for a political solution. That doesn't mean we shouldn't advocate for things that can be done, for solutions, for things that can make things better. But, you know, at this point, I am encouraging people to prepare on a, a community, a family, an individual level, because I do not believe there's any hope in the short term of, of things being fixed, of things turning around. That doesn't mean we should stop advocating for solutions, but, you know, I'm just trying to be very, very realistic about what we're facing. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I could talk to you for hours about this. It's so fascinating. For people who want more, could you tell us about the blogs, where your work appears, and any other contact info you want to pass along? Yeah. People want to follow what I've been talking about with the economy today. My, the primary website I'm known for is the Economic Collapse blog. You can find that at the Economic Collapse blog or if you just go to Google and type in the economic collapse, the first result that comes up. 
I also re- uh, write articles for a website that, that I own uh, known as endoftheamericandream.com. And then if you want to find all my articles in a central location, I've got a website which I'm now starting to promote. It's themostimportantnews.com, or if you just go to Google and type in the most important news, it should be the first result that comes up. And then my books, The Beginning of the End, which we talked about earlier, my novel, and then a nonfiction book that I co-authored entitled Get Prepared Now. Both of those can be found on Amazon.com. Michael Snyder, thank you so much for joining us on Radio EcoShock. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Alex. I definitely enjoyed it. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Based on science, we can foresee tremendous stress in a future of extreme weather, rising seas, and climate disruption. It could hurt food production and displace hundreds of millions of people. Will we rise to these challenges as a human species? Dr. Timothy D. Snyder suggests much darker possibilities. Dr. Snyder is an American historian, a professor at Yale University, and affiliated with other European institutions. Two of his five books, Black Earth and Bloodlands, have rewritten our understanding of the mass killings by Germany and the Soviet Union during the 1930s and 40s. In a New York Times op-ed September 13, 2015, Snyder raised a new alarm saying, quote, Climate change threatens to provoke a new ecological panic, end quote. Is mass murder in our past? or in our future. Dr. Snyder, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, given the subject matter, I've been looking forward to our talk and yet not looking forward to it. And before we get to the environmental parallels in our current world, could we look through some of the research you've done to say, well, for example, that many more millions of civilians died outside of death camps than in them? Why didn't we know that? Right. So so the, the book that I discuss that in is called Bloodlands, and in Bloodlands, what I try to do is move us away from the traditional ways that we minimize mass killing. We tend to either start from some nation or other that we're particularly interested in, or we criticize one political system that we don't like, let's say the Soviet Union or or Nazi Germany. What I did instead of that was to move away from the national and the ideological and try to return to the territorial and the human. And I began from a really simple observation, which is that uh, the huge majority of the deliberate political mass killing that takes place in Europe in the 20th century takes place at a very short period of time in a relatively confined bit of territory between Berlin and Moscow between 1933 and 1945. Why do we not know this? We don't know this because we see things ideologically, we see things nationally, but also because that's a part of the world. It's precisely that part of the world which was behind the Iron Curtain through 1989. So researching things that we think we know about, like, for example, the Holocaust, actually requires us to look eastward. Um, Just to take the Holocaust as the most familiar of these crimes, the entirety of the Holocaust takes place in this zone. Basically, every single Jew who's killed in the Holocaust is killed in Eastern Europe and not in the places that are more familiar to us. So what rationale did Hitler and his cronies have for their invasion of Poland and the Ukraine? Well, Hitler wanted war. The fundamental goal of Hitler's rise to power was to start a war. He wanted a war because he believed that the world was corrupt, that the present state of affairs did not reflect nature, that nature demanded of everyone racial struggle, 
and that in particular Germans are uh, unfairly confined in Central Europe and should have an empire which befits their status as, as a higher race. So the strategy, such as it was, was to destroy the Soviet Union and to take Ukraine because Ukraine was believed to be correctly a source of fertile soil and thereby food and thereby um, political and economic independence and grandeur for, for Germany. Now, along the way, Hitler has to do a whole bunch of things which he hadn't really planned on. He didn't expect that he would have to fight a war against Poland or, for that matter, against Britain. He didn't know that Czechoslovakia could be so easily dismantled. So between 1938 and 1941, when the main war against the Soviet Union starts, we see a whole suite of destructive events in which the European order is essentially destroyed. Austria goes away, Czechoslovakia goes away, Poland is invaded in 1939, all in order to pave the way for the invasion of the Soviet Union. But over the course of those years, as states are destroyed, new forms of political anarchy are created which allow the SS, the Nazis, to figure out how a final solution can actually be implemented, and that is by way of mass murder. So in a minute, we'll get back to your major warning about what people will do to protect their lifestyles. But first, I want to say I spent a few years reading about the Holocaust and the Hitler regime, and it was disturbing to realize that some aspects of National Socialist policy would be considered green, trying to restore nature. And although greens are aligned with the left today, a green fascism is not impossible. Would you agree? Well, what Hitler thinks about nature, I think, is crucial. I wouldn't want to speak for the Greens today, but I think it's probably fair as a general matter to say that they don't see nature as a kind of naked zone of natural resources to be exploited remorselessly by whichever people appoint themselves as the higher race. That's how Hitler saw nature. And by rest by restoring nature, what he meant was restoring what he thought of as a state of nature in which people murdered each other by starvation continuously for no other reason except to exploit natural resources. So that's his idea of nature. And a lot hangs on what you think nature actually is. And I, I would say I would say that most environmentalists probably see nature in in a rather different way. Well, that's a long conversation because I know Martin Heidegger, the Nazi philosopher, or at least he was for a while, said, for example, rivers have a right to exist for their own sakes and should not be damned. And I know there are some American environmentalists who would agree with that. But that's not really why we're talking today. I mean, one of the great mass murders of recent times developed, as you say, in African Rwanda in 1994. We were told it was a tribal battle between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Was there an ecological side as well? Of course there was. Um, it's very rare to find an episode of mass killing in which there's not some ecological concern. We find it easier to decode the politics and the ideas. And in our own lives, what separates us from the Germans is that we don't, we Americans at least, Canadians, British, Australians, don't face day-to-day -day the kind of ecological uncertainties that even Europeans did back in the 1930s. It's that which blinds us 
to the economic side of atrocity, to the ecological side of atrocity. So anyone who studies Rwanda would know that the year before uh, the mass killing began, there was an absolute decline in crop yields, which is an unusual event. And one would also want to know that um, there was a general belief inside Rwanda, Rwanda that, that land was short, that fertile land was in short supply, and that the civil war that was underway was largely about control of land. And then during the course of the mass murder, the people who murdered almost always took land, and people from one tribe would even kill people from their own tribe in order to, in order to get land. This, by the way, is very similar to the elements of the history of the Holocaust and other European ethnic cleansings and mass murders that we tend to forget, namely that it's always the case that a tremendous amount of real estate changes hands, either by the people who do the killing or by people who benefit from the killing and thereby are, in a general way, implicated in what happens. And so this can be something trivial, like people in Vienna in 1938 wanting bigger apartments, or it can be something more palpable, like Africans who are actually concerned about having enough food to survive. But either way, the sense of improving one's own fate can lead to be one of the sources of mass killing. But would we kill each other just for lifestyle if we had enough food? Well, I think, you know, the history of the post-war United States or the Western world generally demonstrates that it is possible to give people a sense of, of satisfaction. It's just extremely hard. And Hitlerian politics warn us that it doesn't have to be about actual starvation. What Hitler meant by Lebensraum, by living space, was not just controlling enough territory to survive. He mobilized survivalist emotions by talking that way. But what he really meant was that Germans had the right to have the highest standard of living in the world. They had the right to feel that they weren't falling behind, for example, the Americans. He put it explicitly that way. And I worry a bit that Hitler was on to something when he defined lifestyle as always being relative and always being subjective, that there's a lot to be said for the worry that Americans or others would behave badly, not because their lives were necessarily threatened, but because their styles of life were threatened. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, Yale history professor Tim Snyder. We're talking about the possibility of mass murder in the coming time of climate disruption. You write about several hotspots where mass murder might develop as a new final solution. I'd like to add one, and that's the border where Muslim Bangladesh meets Hindu-dominated India. We may be only decades away, Tim, from a tipping point where repeated incursions of rising seas drive millions of people out of Bangladesh towards where? An already population-soaked India. Do you see that as a possible flashpoint for millions of deaths? I, I don't I don't know about millions of deaths, but certainly you're right, and a number of other people have drawn attention to, to that precisely that scenario. I decided in the conclusion to simplify things by concentrating on desertification scenarios like Libya, where the annual drought is expected to increase from 100 days to 200 days, to Egypt, where the Nile could very well go dry right, in some time in the foreseeable future, to, to Syria and Iraq, where the Fertile Crescent no longer exists, where ISIS fights from waterhole to waterhole. 
I decided for simplicity's sake to focus on those kinds of scenarios, but you're exactly right. As one moves into South Asia, Central Asia, East Asia, one also has scenarios which involve too much water and people having to, having to move for that reason. Tim Snyder, your New York Times article suggests China may be forced to adopt some of the same arguments that Hitler did. It's possible. Please take as long as you need to explain that scenario for us. So let me take two steps before I answer that question. The first step is to repeat that these kinds of arguments are not necessarily about the Chinese or about the Germans or about the Americans. They have to do with modern politics. So if I say that China has a Lebensraum problem, I'm not saying that the Chinese leadership is necessarily like the Nazis or that the Chinese are prone to this kind of behavior any more than anyone else. What I would be saying is that China, in the early part of the 21st century, faces a situation which is rather similar to that of Germany in the early 20th. Namely, you have a big, prosperous, developing, exporting economy, which cannot guarantee itself um, from its own land a reliable supply of food, and therefore is anxious, always anxious, about international markets. The second step I would want to take before pointing to the risk is to try to draw a distinction between local episodes of, of genocide and the kinds of international episodes which would be the greatest danger. We've already mentioned South Asia, the Middle East, Syria, Africa, places where episodes of, of ethnic cleansing and genocide have taken place in the last quarter century or so. Now, horrible as all these events are, they involve state failure and ecological panic, two of the factors that I highlight in the book. The truly horrifying scenario, the worst of all possible scenarios, in it, one which would be much more similar to the 1930s and 40s, would be when a state with state capacity, with the ability to think ahead, adopt some ideology about how other people are to blame for ecological problems and destroys other states. That is, you see, what actually happened in the Holocaust. The Holocaust was not a matter of the German state becoming authoritarian and killing its own citizens. It killed almost no Jews on the territory of pre-war Germany before the war. What the Holocaust was, was an artificially generated resource war, which had the consequence of destroying other people's states, creating a political vacuum in which an ideology of anti-Semitism could actually lead to mass murder. So what we have to worry about in the future, most of all, is that some powerful state which can think ahead destroys neighboring or distant political structures based in some kind of ideology about how this is right. So the, the Chinese scenario depends upon a lot of historical thinking, um, as, as well as a lot of you know attempts to understand the Chinese point of view, which is a bit different from ours in terms of resources. And the particular things that I'm worried about are existing Chinese investments, uh, leases, attempts to control land in East Africa, as well as Chinese possible moves in the future towards northwards towards Siberia. Now, in the United States, in the Republican-controlled Congress, climate denial is rampant. How does that compare to Hitler's opposition to science? Well, i got to say in general, I think this is not going to be a moment on which we look back with pride. Um, I, I wouldn't want to say that, you know, these people 
are like national socialists in every in every respect. That would be completely ludicrous. All I'm saying is that if we read the sources, if we read the history, we notice things about the origins of the Holocaust that make us uncomfortable and should make us uncomfortable. The problem with the way we think about the Holocaust now is that we only talk about it when it already aligns with our existing worldviews, right? So American Republicans would generally say the Holocaust was the pro- was a result of a German authoritarian state, which arose because there was too much social democracy and a too big welfare state, and so on and so forth, which is total total nonsense. It's historically completely nonsense. The thing that we might want to pay attention to in the present moment is the way that Hitler, in his own writings and practice, brought science and politics together. What Hitler said was, we must compete now. We must struggle now. We must fight now because science cannot save us. He specifically denied that science could create a more bountiful future for the Germans, for the Europeans, for everyone. He specifically denied the relevant technologies of his day, which were the hybridization of grains, irrigation, pesticides, fertilizers, because he needed to claim that all there was was conflict. So this is not just like today, but it certainly casts some light on a mistake that we can make today. We make a similar mistake today if we say that climate science isn't real, alternative energy isn't real, because in doing that, we make a mistake in principle and a mistake in practice. The mistake in principle is to say that science is politics and politics is science. To say that the scientists are just one more lobby, it's just one more opinion, you know, they're paid by somebody, why should we believe them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is a hilarious move, because what it does is it removes the possibility for hope in the future. If there is hope for the future, then there's no need for conflict now. The practical mistake is, if you don't support science, then you in fact are co-creating a world in which actual resource conflicts are not only more likely, they're going to come much faster. And in that world, the danger of, of, of all kinds of conflict, including bloody conflict, which would be called genocide or ethnic cleansing, is much more likely. So we need the reality of science. But we also need hope, because as the, as the years pass, we're all going to see, as most of us already feel, the consequences of climate change. And as that gets worse, it's very important for us to think that there is something that we can do besides take other people's land. And, that, and there is something. The question is whether we believe in it and invest in it sufficiently in time. Isn't there a large difference, though, between using computers and modern transportation to round up millions of people into death camps, as Hitler did, and the historically natural death by starvation that happens to any species who have multiplied beyond their food supply? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I'm not sure I understand the angle of the question, because Hitler's point of view is that nature demands of us that we think racially and exterminate other races. That, that There was nothing, in fact, biologically or zoologically or naturally determined about that. That was a matter of policy. And, of course, Hitler has the actual science 100% wrong when he denies that irrigation and, and hybridization and pesticides and fertilizers are going to work, he's completely wrong. Um, in fact, within a few years, the problem for Europeans is they have too much food, not not too little. So the Holocaust is a matter 
of political choices that are justified by a certain extremely pessimistic view of nature and one which excludes the possibility that scientific innovation can change the relationship between people and their natural environment. So that kind of thing is very different from from natural selection. Hitler claims that it's the same thing as natural selection, but but it's not. The danger that I see is that as conditions get objectively worse, then the kinds of politics that Hitler propounded personalizing a sense of anxiety um, or a sense of envy rather than working structurally to improve the future, those kinds of politics become ever more tempting. And I'm afraid whether one looks at um, the rise of the, the Popular Front in France or populist nationalism in the Europe in general or the current presidential debates in the U.S., we are already tipping in that direction. So from your studies, as we start to wrap up here, do you think there's a way that we could immunize humanity to any degree against this urge to use mass murder during periods of climate stress? Of course there is. The sense that everything must happen in the present moment, the sense of of what I call in the book ecological panic, it's something that we're capable of. That's the lesson of history. We can be pushed in that direction. We can stand over a pit in Belarus and Lithuania and shoot babies on the logic that it's them or us. We have demonstrated that we can do that. But we have also demonstrated that we're capable of building out the fourth dimension of time. We are capable of looking back into the past and learning, and we are capable of inventing scientific techniques which allow us to believe that there's going to be a future. We're also capable of that. Both of those things are possible. And, you know, the Germans, for that matter, have done each of those things. So that what that leaves us with is, is the possibility of choice, the reality of political choice, the reality, which is a little bit frightening, that we actually have responsibility for which way things go. We can choose to believe that all that's left is conflict, or we can choose to try to behave in such a way that builds out a future for us and, and for everyone else. But that, that is down to us. Briefly, what is your latest book and what are you working on now? Hmm. Well, the, the latest book is the one that we've mostly been talking about, which is Black Earth, the Holocaust as History and Warning. Most of the book is devoted to history. I, I develop uh, at great length an argument about how Hitlerian ideology interacts with a sense of ecological panic and works itself out throughout Europe insofar as states are destroyed. At the end of the book, in its conclusion, I I develop a few scenarios about risk for the present and, and future. Um, what I'm working on now, ha, I'm mostly I'm drawn into thinking about the connections, these connections between present and past. I'm looking forward to a future in which I could occupy myself with something else entirely. Me too. <laughs> our, guest is, <laughs> our guest is Dr. Timothy D. Snyder, author and professor of history at Yale University. Tim Snyder has written a series of authoritative books on mass murders by the Soviets and the Nazis. Find links to Dr. Snyder and his books in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Tim, thank you so much for spending time with us on Radio Ecoshock. So glad I could. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith. We are pushing the end of our time, at least for this Radio Ecoshock show this week. 
I'm Alex Smith. As always, thank you very much for listening and caring about our world. Cook County has now set a new record for rainfall after being hit hard this year. According to the National Weather Service, Gainesville has received nearly 80 inches of rain this year, the most all-time in about a 30-county region in North Texas, stretching from Waco to the Red River. Oh, look at this. Today's rain, so bad it flooded out Zoo Miami. I have been here for 36 years working for the zoo, and I have never seen anything even close to this in November and December. These weather patterns have changed dramatically. This rain is historic as far as the zoo is concerned.